0: If you have your Bibles, I invite you, if you would, to take them out, turn them on, and join me in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in Mark chapter 8 this morning as we return to a series through the Gospel of Mark that we left off at the end of November of last year. We managed to work our way through up to the climax and the, the halfway point in the Gospel of Mark, and we had a bit of a cliffhanger, and we're picking up this morning as we um, pick up where Jesus and Peter left off, and then talk about the cost of discipleship together this morning. A couple of days ago, I did as many people are doing in this time of year, and that is I I took time to sit down and prayerfully consider what my goals would be over the next 360-something days, since we're on the third at this point. And I thought through the different categories of my life, whether it would be goals for my family, goals for me personally, spiritually, physically, goals for this congregation, goals for me professionally, different things. And many of you are making those same resolutions. Maybe your resolutions are something uh, about getting healthier this year, or maybe you have a specific financial goal that you would like to see accomplished this year. Maybe you have an opportunity to fulfill a long-held dream, to go on that dream vacation or buy that new vehicle or something. But as I was thinking through this and I was asking about myself and I would ask you, as you're shaping those goals, you're shaping them to match something. You're modeling them after someone or something in this life. And my question for you and my question for myself is, is, what is the standard or the model that I am following after? What's the model that I'm, I'm following after as I set my physical goals for the year? What's the model that I'm shaping my financial security or my financial situation with my family after? What's the goal that I have in front of me either socially or, or vocationally? I think oftentimes when we set those goals and we're looking at that model, we're following after some idealistic image of what is perfect and what is powerful for humanity. We compare ourselves to the images of success that's offered to us by an individualistic and hedonistic society and culture. We need to look no further than this idea, this this image of the American dream which is this picture of somebody who manages to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and make something of themselves in this world. And by make something of themselves, we're talking about someone who is politically or financially or personally powerful in some way. They have money. They have no want of anything because they can buy whatever they need. They looked up to. They're admired. They're, they're followed. I mean, just think about the new status of of Instagram culture trendsetters and Facebook trendsetters and these social media moguls who who create followings for themselves. That's where the world is looking. And that's where we're often guilty of looking and we're following after fake, false, faulty patterns of success. And the Bible would have us follow an infinitely greater pattern. The Bible would have us model ourselves and our futures after an entirely different standard of success. The standard of success that the Bible gives for us is defined not by wealth and health and prosperity and power. Instead, the Bible's definition of success is defined by self-denial and sacrifice and surrender. And that's what we find as Jesus teaches His apostles and His disciples in these verses in Mark chapter 8. Look with me, if you will, in Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 31, where Mark is going to pick up in the middle of a a section that we, we left, as I said earlier, in a cliffhanger last year. Mark writes, and Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Would you pray with me this morning? Father in heaven, we stop and we acknowledge that you are amazing. You are all of these good things that we just sang, a way maker, a miracle worker. You are the same God yesterday and today and forever. And Father, we can trust in you in even the most difficult years and most difficult of circumstances that you are always working Even when we can't see You and even when, Father God, we can't feel You, we can trust that Your Word is true because Your Word is full of promises that You have kept and that You have filled full. And You filled them full in Your Son, Jesus Christ. So as we take time this morning and we examine the pattern of Jesus Christ, a pattern of self-denial and sacrifice and surrender, and we hear His call to the same style of living, I pray, Holy Spirit, that You would convict our hearts That you would show us the things that we have set in front of you and the false, faulty patterns that we are molding ourselves after. That you would completely wreck it. And that instead you would give us a pure and passionate vision of who Jesus is. That we might model our lives after him and him alone. And I pray that in all of it you would receive the glory and the honor as you deserve. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And amen. In these verses, we see and hear Jesus redefining what is the the picture and the image of success. But before we preach through this, it's been about a month, if not a little bit more, since we were in Mark, so I want to back up just a little bit and work our way through this. The first half of Mark is defined by one big question Who is this man? The first seven and a half chapters are dominated by that question of who is this man who has the power to cast out demons, who has the power to stop storms, who has the power to raise people from the dead, who has the power and the authority to define what is acceptable on the Sabbath day, who has the power and the authority to forgive people of their sins. That question continues to pop up throughout the first half of the book. And we got to the climax of that when that question was finally answered by the disciples. Just a few verses, the first before we picked up here in verse 31, where in 29, Jesus asks the 12, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers him in this moment of revelation, this spiritual revelation that the Holy Spirit speaks into his heart and gives him a sense of understanding beyond just human understanding. And Peter declares, you're the Christ. You're the King. The anointed one, the expected one, the promised one. You are the Christ. Not a Christ, but the Christ. The fulfillment of all of the promises that God has made to the people of God and to the world. You are Him. And Jesus immediately tells them all, commands them to keep that to themselves. Jesus has been doing that throughout the first seven and a half chapters of the Gospel of Mark. Every single time someone, whether it be a demon or whether it be an individual, begins to unveil the identity of Jesus, Jesus silences them. He won't let them announce who this person is. And we've wondered this question, why is he doing this? And here we immediately understand why. Because as soon as Jesus, as soon as Peter declares Jesus to be the Christ, and Jesus strictly charges them to tell no one about them, he begins to teach them. He begins to redefine for them who the Messiah is supposed to be. In these verses, we discover that Jesus is giving the disciples, the apostles, a new understanding of who the Messiah is. So Jesus exposes the pattern of the of the uh, of the Messiah. His mission, his mission is the Messiah, follows a pattern that is established by God and not what has been fantasized or or thought through by men. Instead, the pattern of Jesus Christ, the pattern of the true Messiah, needs to be reshaped and re-understood. They have this understanding that Jesus is the Christ, but they have a misunderstanding of what the Christ is supposed to do. And so Jesus is going to, like, take imagine this image, this understanding of who Jesus, the Christ, is supposed to be like a cup. And they have filled it full of all of these cultural expectations of who the Messiah is supposed to be. Jesus is going to take that cup and dump every bit of it out. Empty it completely, wash it clean, dry it up, and fill it with the truth of who the Messiah actually is. Everything that they considered holy and everything that they considered perfect understanding, Jesus is going to trash it all, and he's going to instead fill it with a new understanding of who the Messiah is supposed to be. And this Messiah has a, has a pattern that is not one that is victorious but is instead one that is defined by sacrifice and suffering. And he is going to teach this to them in a new way. One of the the characteristics of Jesus' teachings up to this point is that he has been teaching in parables. If you remember, it was his pattern to teach in parables. And we we define a parable as a story or a teaching or even actions of Jesus Christ that unveil a spiritual reality, that take what was spiritually hidden and bring it to light. One that's crucial for our understanding of this section that we move forward is what happens in the verses before this, in verses 22 through 26 of chapter 8, where Jesus heals the blind man of Bethsaida. And if you'll remember, throughout the majority of up to this point in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has the ability to heal miraculously just with a simple spoken word. He raises someone from the dead by speaking a simple phrase, little girl, it's time to get up. That's how powerful he is. But in this moment and in this instant with this blind man of Bethsaida, Jesus heals him by by a physical element, not just a verbal element, and it takes place in stages. Where the blind man of Bethsaida, Jesus takes him and he, he touches his eyes and he asks him, can you see? And he says, I see people, but they look like trees. Then Jesus touches him again, and it's at that point that his eyes are opened. And we said that the answer to the, the reason there is not because there was something wrong with the man or because there was something wrong with Jesus, but because there was something wrong with the disciples. He had just told them that they do not yet understand. Are you without understanding? And so Jesus uses this opportunity to have a physical parable in which he reveals the spiritual blindness of the disciples. And so we see Jesus establishes this pattern at the beginning that this is what the ministry of the Son of Man is going to be. That he is going to be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. He's going to be killed, and after three days, he's going to rise again. This is the first of three prophecies that Jesus is going to give to the disciples. And the pattern that's going to happen at this point is Jesus is going to teach on the suffering that is coming to the Messiah, and on the other side of the suffering, the victory. These aren't just passion predictions of Jesus' death. Every single one, he declares, I'm not just going to die, I'm going to come back. It's a statement of suffering and victory, and it confounds the disciples. And so in each one of these instances where we see Jesus plainly teaching, as he hasn't done to this point, remember he's been teaching in parables, instead now Mark says he plainly says these things in front of them, clearly without any type of attempt to hide anything. He plainly says, this is what's going to take place. And they don't understand the plain teachings of Jesus, and we're going to see the disciples manifest their misunderstanding. And that's what we see in the pushback that Peter gives immediately in these verses. He doesn't like what it is that he hears, and so he has the audacity to rebuke Jesus. We examined these verses. As I said we're backing up and moving forward. We looked at these verses back in November, so I'm not going to labor this point, but Jesus clearly establishes what's going to be the pattern of the, of, the, of the Messiah. And Peter now steps up as a representative of the apostles, and he gives Jesus some pushback. As Peter rejects this idea of sacrifice that Jesus says is essential to the mission of the Messiah. He comes in and says, you can't be talking like this pulls him aside and has the audacity to rebuke the Son of God for declaring that he is going to do the will of God, which includes that he would die. And the point of these verses that we see here in in Peter is that we can't just look down our noses at Peter because the truth of the matter is, Peter's just a stand-in for you and for me. And our tendency to expect God to conform to us To our wants, to our desires, to our expectations. This is exactly what Paul says is the problem of humans in Romans chapter 1. That we have rejected God as he has revealed himself to us, and instead we've recreated him in idolatrous images that oftentimes look a lot like us. And so Peter doesn't like the mission that Jesus has laid out for the Messiah and so he steps in and says this isn't the way that it's supposed to be and Peter needs what you and I need every once in a while, a swift kick in the pants. And gets told, get back in your place. It's not out in front of Jesus Christ setting the path for Jesus to follow that any disciple deserves to be in. Instead, it's behind him, following after him. And so as Peter attempts to rebuke Jesus, Jesus in turn rebukes him right back. Because Peter has set his eyes on the things of man, Jesus says, instead of the things of God. Peter's playing the short game. And you and I are guilty of playing the short game, whereas God is playing the long game. We can't see into the other side of eternity. Our lives, as we understand them, consist of the things that we can see, the things that we can feel, the things that we can do, the things that we can accomplish in this life. And that often takes priority over anything and everything else that we may do or that God may call us to in this lifetime. But God has called us to something greater because God sees beyond the ends of our lives and all the way into the the fringes of eternity. And God's plans are infinitely greater than your plans or my plans. His desires are infinitely greater than yours or mine. God sees all things knows all things, works all things to the good of those who are called according to his purpose. What we need is something, though, to bridge that gap between what we can see and what we can't. And that's when Jesus gives to the, not just the twelve, the apostles, but to all of the disciples who are in the vicinity, to you and to me, Jesus gives a promise a promise that calls us to something, that expects something from us. We see that promise near the end of the verses that we've read this morning, where Jesus begins to appeal to our sense of self-preservation. Listen, if you want to have life, if you want to save your life, you're gonna have to lay it down. I mean, your soul, what is your soul worth? All of the money that you can can accumulate for yourself in this life cannot purchase your soul from God. All of the success and the fame and the prominence and the love that you get from the people in your life cannot redeem your soul. All of the good deeds that you accomplish and all of the, the boxes that you check of your religiosity Don't mean squat in the end. Isaiah says they're like dirty rags in front of the Lord. All of our best efforts to get and earn his love and his attention. Jesus gives this promise at the end of this that there is going to be a day that comes in which the Son of Man will be glorified. And the promise given to true disciples is that they will, in that day they will not be rejected by Jesus, but they will embrace him and not only be eyewitnesses of this glory that is coming, but will even be participants in it. True disciples get to be with the Son of Man at the end of all things. What he says negatively, he gives positively as he hints at this down payment of this coming of the kingdom and its power that some of those who were with Jesus at that moment were going to witness. And we'll see the first fruits of that next week. But receiving this promise requires something from every single would-be true disciple, And Jesus gives those requirements, those expectations for all those who would be his disciples in verse 34. The cost of discipleship, the sacrifice that Jesus calls us to, begins with a denial of self. Jesus said, if you're going to come after me, first deny yourself. Now something that we need to understand is that this denial of self is not what we typically understand and embrace as self-discipline. Sarah has made the decision for our family that just like last year, time to, to clean up our eating. I'm fine with that for now. We'll see where we're at when I get the keto flu in another couple of days. But we're under, we understand this notion of self-denial, that I, I reject certain things or I deny myself certain temporal pleasures or certain things in, in an attempt to accomplish a greater goal. So, since I want to eat healthier, since I want to eat better, I can't have those last three orange balls that are in the freezer, that are covered in coconut and sugar and all the other kind of stuff that's just great. They're just going to have to sit there and get freezer burnt, I guess, or she'll sneak them to the children. We understand this idea of self-discipline, of self-denial in that sense, but that's not what Jesus is calling us to in this particular passage of Scripture. To deny here means to refuse to acknowledge or recognize. It's the same word that Peter, or that Mark is going to use for Peter's behavior on the night of Jesus' trial when he denies knowing Jesus three times. Exact same word. It's a refusal to recognize, a refusal to acknowledge. He's calling us not to forsake a joy or a pleasure that the Lord has rightly given to humans. It's not just self-discipline, but on the other side, it's not the extreme that some have gone to, which is called asceticism. Asceticism is the rejection of any type of joy or pleasure at all. You've seen it throughout church history as people have gone and they've isolated themselves in this hermit-like lifestyle where they reject all of the modern amenities of life. And it's like they live with this desire to punish themselves for something. They embrace this harsh lifestyle where there seems to be no joy. As they deny themselves the good things that God has given to us in this life. That's not what God's calling here. That's not what Jesus is calling us to here at all. He's not calling us to some life of perpetual penance in which we're denied anything that's joyful. Instead, He's calling to He's, he's called us to life, an abundant life. And the way that we get that life is by denying ourselves. Not denying ourselves something. Denying me, period. Denying my self-identification. Denying my wants, my desires, were the things that I would say define who I am. Jesus says, you want to be with me, deny yourself. Refuse to acknowledge yourself. Surrender your own identity completely to me. Give up anything and everything that you would love more than Jesus. We're going to see Jesus confront people over the next several chapters with this same challenge in many different ways. David Garland, in his commentary, talks about self-denial this way. He says, self-denial takes shape in many ways. For some, it may mean leaving a job and family just as the disciples have done. For the proud, it means renouncing the desire for status and honor. For the greedy, it means renouncing an appetite for wealth. The complacent will have to renounce the love of ease. The faint-hearted will have to abandon the craving for security. The violent will have to repudiate the desire for revenge. And on it goes. Individuals know best what hinders them from giving their lives over to God. What is there that you are allowing to identify and define your understanding of yourself? Is it your sense of independence? I'm going to do things my way. Is it a pursuit of a career goal? Is it even a pursuit of something that, that is good that the Bible tells us that we're supposed to pursue, which is a, a holy marriage and a happy family? We can turn the good things of God into idols when we make them the most important things, and that's not what God wants for us. We're to deny those things that would identify us, and in doing so, we surrender our limited ambitions, our limited identity, our false independence, and we find ourselves aligned with someone and something infinitely greater than we ever could have possibly imagined. And that someone, Jesus Christ, gives us a new identity. And an essential aspect of this new identity is a willingness to embrace sacrifice. And that's when Jesus tells us that we are not only supposed to deny ourselves, we are to take up our cross. I struggled with this one. Because the truth of the matter is there is absolutely no modern equivalent to the cross in our day. And we have misunderstood what it is and the the significance of the cross in our lives. We wear gilded crosses on our necks. We imprint ornate designs on our skins. We build beautiful statues of the cross. Completely ignorant of what it actually was. An instrument of torture and judgment and death. Would you wear a necklace with a pendant of the electric chair on it? Would you tattoo a guillotine on your shoulder? Would you set up a a small version of the rack in your front yard where they used to tie people's hands and feet and torture them by ripping them apart? That's what the cross was. It was the most heinous, torturous means of execution ever invented by human beings. That's what you wear on your neck, on your wrist, and have posted on your wall, a torture device, a means of execution, a means of death. That's what Jesus is calling his disciples to, to death. The cry of the true disciple is, I will follow Jesus to the death. And that level of commitment that Jesus expects from his disciples is one that we take, I think, lightly. Because we live in a world where reality is we're not facing death for our Christianity. And so we'll postulate all day long that if somebody puts a gun to my head, I'll be just like that little girl at at Columbine back in the 90s and I will declare my faith and take the shot. And go and be with Jesus. Because the truth of the matter is many of us are motivated by martyrdom where we love this idea of I'll be glorified just like she was. I'll be remembered just like she was. I'll be, I'll be admired just like she was. But what about those faceless men and women on the other side of the world in the last years or so that we have watched be beheaded by ISIS and other organizations? We'll never know who they were. Maybe you do, I don't. But I would put it this way if you're not willing, if we're not willing to embrace social ostracism and shame and rebuke and scorn, if we're not willing to embrace some financial strain and stress placed upon the church as our our religious freedoms are, are impeded upon how in the world do we think that we're going to be able to stand in the face of the executioner and say, yeah, I'm still in love with Jesus, regardless of how you threaten me? We have big dreams for ourselves. But the way of the cross is to embrace emin- anonymity, humiliation, and even rejection. And to the disciples, though, at this moment, there's, the cross is not just something, a means of death. The cross was a means of humiliation and shame and defeat. At this point, to the disciples, the cross wasn't a picture of victory. Jesus hadn't died on the cross and been raised yet. Instead, the cross was the place where the fake messiahs ended up. Because the years leading up to the advent of Jesus as a baby boy, born in Bethlehem, were years that were, were defined by struggle and strife and fight. As there were revolts against Roman rule and people would be raised up and they would pull together armies around them and they would declare themselves to be the Messiah who is going to throw off the, the, the yoke of Rome and set Israel free. And they went to war and they lost. And what did Rome do with these false messiahs? They strung them up on crosses on the side of the road for people to learn from their failure. And that's where Jesus says that true disciples have to go. To the place of humiliation and defeat. That's the pattern that Jesus is setting for himself so we can understand a little bit more why Peter would be so troubled that Jesus says he's going to die. Because death is what false messiahs get. Victory is what the true messiah gets. And Jesus wants them to understand that they've misunderstood what real victory actually is. Victory comes through the sacrifice and through the suffering, not in spite of it. But we reject this place of humiliation, this place of defeat, when our sensibilities are stepped on or our our ideals are insulted or our morality is minimized, we respond by demanding our rights. We just respond by demanding in the loudest, most violent way that we possibly can as Christians, whether it's on social media or whether it's in the world around us, we rise up and we scream as the moral majority, you will give us what we deserve. Because this is America. America. And what you deserve and what I deserve is death on a cross. That's it. Period. Done. What Jesus didn't deserve was death on a cross. Period. Because he was the only one who was righteous. He was the only one who was good. He was the only one who had any rights in any sense that it ultimately mattered. And that was rights before God. And he chose to lay those rights down for your salvation and for mine. We're called to embrace the sacrifice, to lay our rights down for the good of one another and for the world outside, to give our lives away for the sake of the gospel. Finally, we're to follow Jesus We deny ourselves to embrace sacrifice. And Jesus said, follow me. Pick up your cross. Get in the race. Follow me. Not as spectators hovering above the path of Calvary and the Via Dolorosa in the blimp as you cheer Jesus on to do what it is that you can't do for yourself not as the spectator on the side of the road clapping him along as he achieves your victory for you, which is all true in all the promises of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he has done everything necessary, but he invites you now to get on the road behind him and step in the steps that he has already made. As the runner and the rider who is embracing the trials and the struggles as you run up the hills and you ride down into the valleys and you experience the thrills and the pains and the stresses and the anxieties of a life with Jesus, following Him every step of the way. And that's not just a one and done decision. Defined by a moment in your history when you gave your life to Jesus and you walked an aisle and you prayed a prayer and you got dunked. Instead, the verb that Mark uses here says you are to follow and keep on following at every point and every stage in your life. Every moment of every day is a commitment to follow after the example of Jesus Christ, to embrace self-denial, to embrace suffering, to embrace surrender to this one who has done everything that is necessary for you. And it is those who endure, those who follow and keep on following, that the Bible promises everlasting life in Jesus Christ. To every single one of the seven churches in the book of Revelation, Jesus speaks this promise to the one who perseveres until the end is who will receive the crown of life. Going back to where Jesus was earlier in the Gospel of Mark, it's the soil that produces fruit that is a source of life and bears evidence of life. Not the one that brought up a shoot that looked real pretty for a little while and then died. It's the one that bears fruit. We're called to a different understanding of what is success. Not power, not prominence, not prosperity, not health, wealth, and all of the things that the televangelists promise if you'll write them a check that you'll receive from God. Jesus' path is a pathway of suffering and shame, meekness, humiliation, And it's through that that we receive the promise of glory. So how are you shaping your life? Are you shaping it after fleeting, faulty, false models that this world holds up? Or are you surrendered to Jesus Christ today? The one who set the path for you. The one who, though he didn't deserve, picked up a cross, bore it to the point of Calvary, where his body was broken and beaten and bloody and gushing, its very life out for you and for me, where he drank the cup of God's wrath and endured your eternity of damnation in hell and my eternity of damnation in hell, are you surrendered to him today? Have you given your life by trusting in Jesus for your salvation? And if so, maybe this year your goals should include goals and a plan for purity, for humility, for generosity, for sacrifice as you redefine your understanding of success based on Jesus' examples and not what you see in Hollywood or on Instagram or anywhere else. Would you take a moment and go before the Lord in prayer and ask God how it is that you need to respond. As Dr. Garland said in his commentary, the individual knows best what hinders them from giving their lives over to God. So let's take a moment in prayer And ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you what is it that's standing in your way? What is it that's keeping you from being a true disciple of Jesus Christ today?